So today, as part of our podcast show, which is powered by Upside Global, we have the honor to interview a group of entrepreneurs and investors. So first, we have Adam Scheyer, a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Siri, which was then sold to Apple. Adam is also the co-founder of Vive Labs, which was sold to Samsung a few years ago. So welcome, Adam. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So then we have uh, Jay Hum, who is the managing partner at uh, GFT Ventures. But Jay is also the co-founder of Translink Capital. So Jay, welcome. Thank you. Excited to Great. be here. Great. So thank you, Jay. And then we have Sean Harrington, a serial entrepreneur and former executive from the New England Patriots, the top NFL team. Uh, Sean is also the founder and GM at Notemill, which was recently acquired by Teamworks. So welcome, Sean. Thank you, Julian. Excited to talk more. Great. So uh, thank you, guys. So welcome to the show. So uh, what I was hoping to talk to you about today was first, you know, what the process was for your, uh, you know, to have a successful exit. And then I'd like to get your thoughts on which advice, you know, you may have for any entrepreneurs uh, that want to have a successful exit. And then I'd like to get your thoughts on what not to do to avoid uh, startup failures. And then uh, I'd love to discuss the investment areas that you are the most excited about. How does it sound? Sounds good. Great. So, uh, you know, my first question is, can you guys walk me through the process of your uh, of your successful exits? So, what was it like, and also what would I've done a bit differently, in your opinion? So, who wants to start? I'm happy to start. Um, Great. So, I've had a few exits, but I, I'm going to talk about Siri. Uh, in that case, we had. Uh, we were a technology, we launched a free app in the app store. And then about two weeks later, Steve Jobs called our office unannounced going, hey, it's Steve, what you doing? Want to come over to my house tonight, tomorrow? And we're like, Steve Jobs is calling us? So that, that was pretty cool. Uh, we went over we, uh, to his house, the three co-founders. We talked for about three hours about the future of technology. And then simple as that, he made it clear he wanted to buy our company. We said, thank you, we're not interested, goodbye, and we left. Wow. So that obviously wasn't the end of the story, yeah. uh, but uh, they came back about, so he, Steve, and Scott Forstall, who ran all of iOS, came back about a month later. Um, they talked about uh, what they would do with our product, and for us, it was very important. Um, we didn't want to just be a feature of, of something, we, we really wanted to be something bigger, a part of every device that Apple shipped. Uh, and they convinced us they understood our vision. Uh, the numbers also started to um, raise a little bit. And so we finally decided to go to um, go work at Apple. Now, one of the things that really helped was we had signed a major distribution deal with one of Apple's competitors. So Siri would have come out on tens of millions of devices of competitor phones, um, you know, with primetime TV ads, et cetera. And so one of the big benefits for acquiring Siri as a company was that Steve could not only get our great technology, he could stop it from going uh, huh? somewhere else. So I think that's um, one tip that really helped um, our acquisition story. In fact, I think it was probably having that deadline of we were going to ship uh, on a certain day um, helped accelerate the process. So I believe we are the fastest exit ever. The due diligence process was two weeks wow. from start to finish. And there's a ton of legal work that has to go on and just technical checking and Every single I has to be dotted and T crossed. So people, the lawyers were staying up 24 seven over yeah. two weeks to get that done. But having a date really helped. Uh, the one thing that I would maybe, that I learned from this is we were a software company and a technology company. Um, licenses were far, like open source licenses and others were far more of, a, of an issue for both, for in all three of my acquisitions, um, I was always surprised that it was a bigger issue, bigger deal than I expected. 
Um, so I always thought, oh, LGPL, that's a fine open source license. It's not copy left and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But many times the big companies have different views about what's, uh, what they want to have uh, as software within their enterprise and their policies. And you just, so I would say uh, the thing I would have done differently was really make sure we have our, our house in order with respect to licenses. And we were pretty good in pretty good shape, but um, it, it, became, it became a bigger issue than I ever thought. Uh, so that's a, something to think about for technology companies. And you can tell us what, what the OEM was, I'm just joking. What's that? You don't have to tell. You don't have to tell us which OEMs was gonna you guys send a deal with. Oh, okay. Right. You don't um. have to tell us. Um, <laughs> so we want guys. So thank you, Adam. So who wants to go next? Uh, sure, I can go. Um, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's really a, a pleasure to meet Adam, one of the founders of Siri, um, and also Viv. Um, I'm actually quite familiar with both companies. Um, at the time, uh, I think when the Siri announcement was announced, um, I was at Samsung running their venture group. Uh, and so I was familiar with that. And then after I had left, obviously, um, Viv was acquired by my former colleagues at Samsung as well. Um, on my part, I was actually involved with a company in the space um, for many years. In fact, um, the first investment uh, in this company, Soundhound, which I'm sure Adam, you're familiar with as well. Uh, was back in 20, uh, 2008. Um, so we were, I believe, the Series A lead investor at the time. Uh, the company had raised a seed round prior to that. And uh, it took a long time. I was on the board for 13 years. And uh, uh, for those that have actually been following the space, um, the company did announce their uh, SPAC merger agreement uh, in yeah. November of last year. So, um, you know, it was a long run to get there. But uh, obviously, the company had built tremendous value along the way. Now, to be clear, Adam was one of the principals, obviously, at Siri. So, you know, he was actually doing the stuff. I was only on the board. So I was only getting reports and updates while a lot of the progress um, of the company to build the business was been made, as well as the process of um, negotiating the SPAC merger. Um, so what I can tell you is that, um, you know, when we invested in the company, I believe it was you know, back in 2008 at a 20 something pre-money valuation. Um, quite frankly, um, I don't think any of the investors or even the company thought it would take over a decade before we actually got to an exit. And yeah. so one of the things that I think the lessons learned is, you know, again, you hope for the best, you hope if there is um, an early exit, that's great, but ultimately you're building value, you're creating a new business and you have to be long-term oriented. I think the patience it requires both from the operating company, from the management team side, as well as, um, you know, as a board member from an investor side, I think that alignment is really critical. I think if we had any investors around the table that got impatient, um, I can't share details, but let's just say Soundtown uh, got their fair share of acquisition interest from arguably some of the largest technology companies in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet at the same time, while we were open-minded to consider opportunities, ultimately the company was building uh, massive enterprise value. Because if you think about it, um, all the big tech companies from Apple with Siri, with Amazon, with Alexa, uh, Google has Google Voice, and even Microsoft now recently acquired Nuance. Mm -hmm. All of those big giants have their voice platform, their voice AI technology in-house. But um, if you're anybody else, whether you're an auto OEM or a consumer electronics brand or even a telecom service company, internet service company, you know, you're going to think twice before licensing Amazon technology or sending your users to sign up for Google. And obviously, Apple will not share their technology uh, for the most part. So um, the go-to partner um, in the marketplace that had equivalent or arguably even better technology was Soundhound. And as a result, they built these massive partnerships with um, some of the leading auto OEMs, consumer electronics mm -hmm. manufacturers, uh, internet mobile service providers, and became kind of the go-to partner for everybody else. And by doing that, they were able to um, build long-term value. So 
you know, lesson learned for me is, you know, patient, uh, patience matters. And ultimately, you know, whether it's um, a SPAC uh, IPO exit or an acquisition, um, those are exits, but ultimately those are interim steps uh, in terms of getting to uh, real value creation for the shareholders. And so um, to me, that's the big lesson learned is patience. Great story, but thank you, Jay. Um, what about you, Sean? You, you know, you, you're pretty new, right? You got your, your exit was what, like two months ago? That's right. It's about four, about four months ago, Julian. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, and again, I think the first thing to dive in, uh, dive into here, just market size, right? So we are playing in a much smaller space um, than both Adam and, and Jay have played in. Um, it's pretty humbling to be um, on a call with a, with, with, with a founder of a technology that, um, that I, that I, I use every, every day. Right. Um, very, very cool stuff. Um, to kind of shrink down the scope to where, where we work, the sports tech space, not only the sports tech space, but the elite athletics space in particular, we work with the teams. So you think Patriots, you think um, the Patriots as a brand, um, they're, they're doing a lot of revenue in, in ticket sales and merchandise and, and sponsorship deals. Where we operate, we, we, we're, we're capturing a bit of that value, right? Um, from that revenue stream, but where we provide values internal, inside, on the team. How do we get players to, to perform better um, so the team performs better and, and the team wins games, which leads to all that upside um, kind of kind of downstream, right? Mm-hmm. So we're closer to value, but there's a lot smaller smaller um, kind of pool of money flowing, right? Um, and what Notemeal was, Notemeal is, it's a, it's a platform for sports dietitians um, to build meal plans and to educate these athletes more effectively. Um, so if you think my fitness pal in the consumer space, we really dial it in with these professional athletes um, and, and really bridge the communication gap between um, the dietitian and the athlete. Um, and back to the market size bit, um, you know, there aren't, there aren't, to my knowledge, any sports tech companies doing over $100 million in revenue. Um, when we talk about teams, the team sports space, right? So, so think really nascent, um, really small and and. Our story, we went from, um, we founded the company in 2019. Kevin Cush was my co-founder. Uh, we were both former athletes. And we went from zero to one million uh, in ARR in about two years. So it was really fast, fast growth from given the size of the market. Um, and the way we, we approached this, right, is we didn't see, there weren't many big players. Um, things were, were evolving. And really early on, right, we made, we made a very fortunate Cross paths with a very fortunate investor, mentor, now friend, now now um, he's technically my boss now. <laughs> so uh, Zach Marita's started a company called Teamworks about about ten or eleven or I think twelve years ago. Um, mm-hmm. One of the first players in the space, right? They, what they did well is communications technology and scheduling um, for collegiate teams, now pro teams, now international teams, kind of globally. Um, and when I looked at Zach, I was really impressed by the amount of value he was able to deliver and the value he could justify and the, and the revenue he was generating from the teams. Because to me, everyone else that I talked to was charging $5,000 here, $10,000 there. And he was able to break into that, you know, that six figure per contract um, price range with which we all know is what you need to sustain a product to reinvest that money back into the product to build um, a sustainable company. So um, well, the way we approached the acquisition, Zach, Zach and I were on a, on a, a biweekly mentoring call. So for anyone listening to this, running a company, um, thinking about who to put on a cap table, put up, who to put on the board, um, where, to, where to take money, who to talk to, right? The, the, the play from the, from the get-go here was I thought Zach had, had, was operating a business that was going to be well positioned to acquire Notemeal. I also knew that Zach was providing incredible insight um, and he was an investor. So we had this great synergy of aligned interests so when the time came when we got to a certain point of, of revenue and we said, hey, it's, it's either time to go build distribution for, for Sean, the software engineer, to go figure out how to, how to really do sales and build a process um, or to go find a company who was better equipped in this market to do that. We made the decision to exit quite early um, to Teamworks and leverage their network, leverage their distribution um, to, to, sell, to sell the product. And I, I think looking back, um, when you go through that process, Adam, it's funny you mentioned two weeks, man. I think we spent three months. I think we 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 spent the the deal size to attorney fee ratio was <laughs> my might set a record there. But um, um, 
but one thing, one thing that did slow that down, right, is, is Kevin and I never sat down. Kev was my co-founder. We never sat down. We, 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 we did, committed the cardinal sin, right? We never sat down and said, hey, man, what's your number? Um, what's, what, what's your number, right? And, and that was never a conversation we had. It got brought up, um, but we kind of had to, had to figure that out um, real fast. And that's, that's a really delicate conversation to have with someone who you, you care a lot about and you get really close with. Um, and, you know, thankfully we, we saw eye to eye when, 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 it, when push came to shove and um, we were kind of thrown in that frenzy, but definitely for anyone listening, having that conversation as early as possible, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that. Okay, great. But thank uh, you, John. I can't, I can't agree more. I just want to emphasize getting on the same page with your founders early mm-hmm. on what are you doing this for you know, is it, is it for money? Like what would a successful exit look like for you? Is it that you just want product out? Is it, is it a certain amount of, you know, is it money and how much money Um, would you say no to this amount? It's better to do that like day one of the, uh, of the company. Cause that's why, like I said, one of the reasons when Steve Jobs says out of the blue, I want to buy your company for X, we didn't have to be like on Shark Tank and say, wait, can we have three minutes to talk? We're like, no, not interested. Thank you. Goodbye. I mean, we didn't even have to blink because we had had that conversation on day one of our company. So get getting, you know, I think Sean's exactly right. Getting, getting on the same page with your other co-founders, um, very, very important. And, and are you saying, Adam, that maybe Sean too, that, once you start a company with a co-founder, you have to kind of talk about if you reach certain milestones, then you might want to have, you know, maybe conversation or, I mean, uh, like you said, I like the fact that, you know, you need to have those, those goals, right? Where you yeah, start a and company. And, right. Just, and like Jay said, if some of the investors didn't think they had, weren't planning on being on the board for 13 years, they're not happy, mm-hmm. right? Everyone has different expectations. Yeah, and if you know one founder wants to flip immediately, and someone else is going long term and yeah. has to go IPO, like you're not on the same page. So just getting that, having that discussion, especially with founders early, like how do you see this going? What what are the parameters? What what are your motivations? What are we trying to do here so we can all understand each other and just know that from the get go. Um, you know, super, super helpful. If, if like knowing what your, what your, you know, dollar amount is, if you have a limit one way or another, yeah, everyone should know that. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, so we're bringing my next question, right? So if you have any advice, right, to any startup entrepreneur out there today, what would you say to them other things to do to have a successful exit? I mean, you cannot touch on that based on your advice, but what would what would you tell them? Anybody wants to start? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I would say is, and I'm sure both Adam and Sean would agree, um, when you start a company, you're not necessarily thinking about the exit. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and actually thinking about the exit, you know, when you're busy at it is actually not that helpful. Um, again, as we talked about earlier, I think, you know, whether it's an acquisition, um, and you're integrated into part of a larger organization or a larger platform, whether you go public, you know, all of that is a financing event or a more extensive partnership. Mm-hmm. And again, most of the entrepreneurs, at least the successful ones that I've worked with, they don't think about exits. Um, that's not what, you know, is priority at all for them. Um, if they focus on, you know, creating a, compelling value proposition and actually execute on that plan, then exits are going to happen naturally, right? It's just a course of a natural evolution or life cycle of any company or any entity. And, um, you know, again, I also understand that as an entrepreneur, you have a, a duty to your shareholders and investors to be considering and thinking about exits. But, you know, in, in, in my experience, those conversations until they're eminent, meaning somebody actually has an acquisition offer on the table, or you've grown to a point in terms of revenue, run rate, and traction that um, it actually makes more sense to become a public company. 
until you get to those milestones, it's really not a productive exercise. And so quite frankly, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I, I would really focus on the immediate things that you know, Adam and Sean already touched upon. If you're starting a, a company as an entrepreneur, you, know, you can think of yourself as, you know, if you think about various concentric circles and you're in the center of the universe, you're building out layers of, I would say, allies around you. So you, you found your co-founder, right? And then you find your advisors, people, whether it's legal advice, you know, financial financing advice or technical expertise, you build that network of advisors around that. And with those advisors and their hope, maybe you can raise some angel capital financing. And then once you raise the angel round, you go through some development and then you raise your venture capital round. And by the way, you've needed legal and accounting kind of advice along the way as well. And then you get your first customer, your go-to-market partner, all of those things continue to layer on. And it's almost like, you know, in a, in a way you're, you're building out, uh, what's a good analogy for this? I mean, you know, my kids play Minecraft all the time. So, so you're, you're building out your, Minecraft, kind of, yeah. you know, virtual domain and, and your, your, you know, your, your, your kingdom there, almost like, you know, back in our generation, we built Lego and mm -hmm. uh, you built your neighborhoods and whatnot. And, and, and it's an ongoing thing. It almost never ends. And so I'm sorry, I may be becoming a little too philosophical, but um, as I said, exits are not, you know, top of mind share for most of the entrepreneurs I work with. That makes sense. My daughter would say Roblox. That's the new. Yes, I right know. Now. I know. My, my so. son already graduated college and all that. There you go. Great. Thank you, Jay. I would love to add on to that just a little bit. I, I agree for the most part, you, you know, getting into the day, um, day to day of which exit and how, but I do believe there are different types of companies. And if, if you think in technology space, like Siri and, and Viv were really technology first companies. And what we did was we identified an area that we thought would be where big companies want to go. And we worked on the technology before they even knew it necessarily. Um, but we worked to build that out. Uh, the team, the, the patents, the technology to solve a problem. But we knew that getting this technology out to hundreds of millions of users, very, very difficult. Whereas if you can build something like say Samsung would want, Samsung had a billion device footprint. They have a billion devices out there. So if right. we could create something that they, they like, they can snap their fingers and we're on a billion devices. Whereas if we're a startup trying to get our technology out to a billion devices, very challenging, right? So yep. one way to build a startup is try to anticipate where a bigger company might want to go or a group of bigger companies do something that they don't have build value but the value is the technology proposition another type of company is you know all about users and revenue right so mm -hmm. i was a founding member of change.org no one cares what technology change.org uses underneath or what patents they have they have 500 million members and growing like that, and they yep. have enough revenue to self-sustain, that's a different type of company, a different uh, proposition. And what's interesting is that sometimes, it, like what you think would be a good thing, like getting a customer who pays you revenue mm -hmm. can actually be an impediment in some ways to an acquisition. So Siri had a free app uh, in the app store, but it made it easy for Apple to buy because, you know, it's a free app. If they want to turn off the app, they can do it. No one paid money for it, right? If they want to change it and they, they stopped the old Siri app and then they came out with the new. Um, think about, you mentioned Microsoft and Nuance. Um, Nuance had to, in my view, sell, sell their car business because they had all these customers and partnerships that Microsoft didn't want. They wanted the health business, right? So they had to kind of like package themselves 
um, not just for the technology, but for which customers, which partners do we want? If we had, if we had gone to market with that competing uh, OEM for, um, you know, from Apple, we wouldn't have been as interesting an acquisition target if we had had that deployment and those customers and that contract and that revenue. It makes it too complicated. So I do think it's important to know, are you a destination company that's measured and, and do you want to be a destination company that's measured on users and revenue? Do you want to be a professional services organization that's gonna get really the number of customers or do you wanna be a pure technology company? And, and sometimes you can change. I feel like SoundHound as an example, probably started out as a technology company to some extent and had discussions for acquisitions, I'm guessing, and then started doing what I'd call more the professional services, working with enterprises like big car companies and getting revenue, et cetera, which is a much, it's, you can still be successful in growth, but it, that model takes a much longer time, maybe a decade to, to grow because you're dependent on the professional services. So there are different models for a software company. And even though you don't really talk about exit in, all the time necessarily, you're thinking about what value can you produce. I do think it's, it's useful to imagine, are you a technology first company or are you a user, number of users and that's where your value is gonna go company or are you a professional services company where you're gonna you know, get the revenue from lots of customers but have to work with them and build them salesperson by salesperson to do it. So having an idea of your model, I think is important. Adam, it's really funny what you said about the um, uh, this this about the the user um, sometimes having a contract with it with a customer is detrimental to the acquisition process. It reminds me when I used to like again when you're when you're wearing all these hats as a founder, and you're still you're doing the contracting right. You're you're review, you're like reviewing the red lines of the contract, and you're saying, hey, I'll shoot I'll shoot I'll shoot back a note from legal counsel once they read through this, and it's you reading the contract, right? We had a termination clause in there that said, you know, customer can terminate after whatever, one year. And we never focused on the flip side of that. I always wondered why the attorneys put in the, hey, we can cancel this, this contract at any point too, right? And some clubs would strike that, right? Because they're paying for a service, they're, they're investing resources. So I think that's a really good point you make there. And it, it makes me think about, there's, there's also the saying of, hey, like, the, you know, the first time founder focuses on product, the second time founder focuses on distribution. Those are two just like, super distinct areas of expertise and you don't again like I, I the first company i started was we, we we failed at building a product right now this this time we, we built a product and we started to sell it and we would have had to really figure out the second piece the distribution piece um we almost took the shortcut right and, and we we kind of circumvented that and, and traded some upside for some jet fuel now we're still going right um but i think it is really important to, to and it's important to have communication up front to tie your point back to my point, again, I got lucky. You talked to somebody who was kind of an incumbent in the space who was growing faster than any other company. And if you align those two those two pieces together and you can skate toward the puck's head, right? Um, you're able to build a tech that you know uh, a few potential acquirers are, are going to need. And you can that can be your distribution, right? Your distribution can happen through acquisition. So I think it's a really good point that you make. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. So uh, my next question, right? On the other hand, what are the things uh, not to do to avoid startup failures. And, you know, I lived in the Silicon Valley for seven years. I've seen occasions where I've seen startups where they had an offer on the table and then just everything fell apart uh, for many reasons. So what would you tell any entrepreneurs today, you know, things not to do to avoid uh, startup failures, right? Because most of the startups, they fail, right? Statistically speaking. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can go. Ultimately, yeah. at the end of the day, if you really boil it down to it, a startup, like any other business, fails because they run out of cash. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's why companies fail in general as well as startups. And so the key is not to run out of cash. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. But, but how do you not run out of cash? And, you know, I, I've, seen, I've seen both uh, cases. You know, I think I've seen cases where 
they had the right plan, but it just took so much longer. And, and when we talk about kind of time to revenue and sales cycles and whatnot, you know, this is where an entrepreneurial team with experience selling into, if you're a B2B company, an enterprise play, understanding, you know, the various decision makers and the sales cycles and the trials and testing and fully understanding how much time you'll need to generate that first revenue is, is really, really important. And I, I've seen cases where underestimating that in the typical, if I build it, they will come mindset is just a recipe for, for disaster. And, and probably the worst case scenario is if, if you build something interesting enough that you have so many parties that are interesting, but because it's a brand new technology, a platform, everybody, and especially, you know, people need to understand that big companies, you know, typically don't like to take risks. And so even mm -hmm. if they get to the point that they want to engage with you, they're going to test it and try it out to the wazoo to make sure it works before they're actually going to, you know, issue any, you know, volume POs and whatnot. And the companies that actually, I think, are the most challenging and riskiest are companies that have a lot of interest, right? And they end up doing a lot of engagements and trials, but because the uncertainty to the conversion, they end up burning a lot of resources, taking a lot of time, because they need resources to support these various trials with these massive customers. And it's almost like that is kind of the worst thing. If you're you know, building a B2C focused app, right? And you can control the marketing spend and budget because customer acquisition on the app store is not cheap, but at least the budgeting for that is under your control and you get the data on a very almost real-time basis to understand what the conversions are, what the CAC LTV equations are, then those are the actual companies that don't run out of cash because unless somebody makes a big mistake, um, those are actually safer situations. And so, again, I don't want to drag it out too much, but, but ultimately it's the underestimation of the time of conversion that I've seen cause a lot of startup, startup failures over the years. Interesting. Good point, sir, Jay. Who wants to go next? Uh, I'd love to add on to that. I think Jay is right about not running out of cash, right? If you run, and the thing about startups is the amount of cash you have in the bank literally translates into the number of days until you die, right? You, you have a certain burn rate and you can say, I'm spending this much every day on salaries and on office. I've got this much money. You know what your runway is. Mm -hmm. So you need to produce value before you run out of money so that if you don't have revenue- Or you get bought, uh, or you get bought before that. Well, but um, yes, but you still need to get, um, you still need to get bought for value. Yeah. Right. So True. the game for me as an entrepreneur is you start small, right? You incorporate, you then you, you work, work, work a little bit, and then you raise your first round of money mm -hmm. and that sets your value. But every round that you have to raise and Jay would know more as a real VC, but in my model, you have to be at least two X, right? So if I raise $10 million, I'm worth 10 million this round. I need to be at least 20 million next round and then 40 and then 80 and then 100, whatever, mm -hmm. right? There's a curve and a down round can, can kill you. So, but it's often seductive, especially in times when, when money is flowing so freely in VC land to take a huge valuation. And that's, you know, uh, a pressure. So one of my companies, we raised money at an $800 million valuation. And I'm like, yeah. I, as a, I was a founder, but I had exited, I had, you know, and, and an advisor, but I was no longer on the board. I'm like, no, 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 sell at 600 million. Don't raise at 800. I go, you know how much pressure raising at an $800 million valuation is, that means your next round, you need to either raise or exit at a billion and a half. Mm -hmm. Once you run out of money that you've raised, are you sure 
you can be worth a billion and a half dollars? What kind of revenue? What kind of customers? Can you make it there? So because it's this exponential curve, it gets harder every round, right? It's doubling at least every time. And if you go too far, you raise the money, but now you can't meet that valuation. You can exit. And this company uh, exited, but it wasn't a pretty exit. And if you, if you can't raise, if you can't exit at the right time, it's a down round and nobody's happy. Founders get washed out, investors aren't happy, people are leaving, it's a terrible situation. So the game as an entrepreneur is to produce value. It gets harder and harder every round. You want to get to either profitability where you control your own destiny, or if you're climbing that ladder, you need to time it just right. We had, when we were at Viv, we had offers at over a hundred million dollars um, from multiple big companies when we were like nine people and mm -hmm. no product in sight. And we, and I said, that's a lot of money for nine <laughs> people and no product. Right? It was because of you, I think. I'm just kidding. But we had a great team. So we get yeah. this offer and we need to make the decision. Do we keep going one more round? And then, you know, can we, are we confident? We have a hundred million in hand. Are we confident that we can be worth two to 500 in the next round? Mm. In, in the money we raise, if we raise money rather than be acquired, are we confident we can produce that kind of value? That someone, either revenue or acquisition, that we can get at that level. And it's, it's a gambling game if we, if we, if we drink our own Kool-Aid too much and we get to the end of our money, we run out of cash to Jay's point and no one thinks we're worth twice what we were the last time we raised money, it's ugly for everyone and you failed. Mm. So I would say um, you need to be very careful in not drinking your own Kool-Aid because then you can, you know, it can just lead you know, it becomes too much pressure to have to do in this next round to be worth double a value yeah. and, and get too hard. The one other thing that I would mention for acquisitions, which many times this didn't happen for any of my companies, but I've been on the other side of several companies where I get to do the due diligence at a big company for some other startup coming in. Uh, and I've seen failures of the acquisition to go through, many times it's just the team, like the executive team of the startup comes across as not someone the acquiring company would want to work with, right? So you can have great technology, mm -hmm. but one of the important factors that the big companies will look at is, is this someone who fits my model. You know, if you're a Google, they say, are you googly enough or whatever? If you're Apple, they're going to say, do you fit the model that they have yeah. for an Apple employee? And many times people, many companies will underestimate how important that executive team is because they're not just buying the technology, the customers, et cetera. They're also buying employees and they're thinking strongly, do I want to work with these people? And I've seen deals fall through multiple times for other companies where the answer is only, I don't want to work with these people on a daily basis. So something yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah, makes sense. I think, I think one, th one thing, I've got a, just a real quick one. So like a, a, a tactical story when we were going through, again, I've, I've been through this, the acquisition process once, so a lot less experience. Um, first time through, I think kind of, just piggybacking off Adam's point, um, the relationships you have with, if you're, if you're fortunate enough to go into the acquisition, again, with relationships with the folks on the leadership team, they're going to be putting you through due diligence there. And you have hope, like the worst thing to do is to lie, right? Because they're going to like to both everyone's point, they're going to turn everything inside and out, right? So being upfront, having a great, honest relationship with the folks you're going through this, this, this very stressful process, right? Um, super, super important. I think 
you know, and, and then one tactical story. Um, I, I remember at one point we were, they were asking, uh, teamers was asking for, you know, our, our balance sheet. And um, we were asking them for what, what a typical company would need to leave in the bank account for like an, uh, an operating expense. Right. So we were, we, we quickly went from, um, you know, like, like mentors, friends, colleagues, to negotiators, right? I mean, we were, we were toe to toe <laughs> trying to, you know, squeeze out the details of this deal. Um, and to maintain a level of respect, dignity, um, level headedness through the process. Um, that's what blows a lot of these deals up. I've got a lot of entrepreneur friends that have gone through this and they, they get, you know, they get integrated into the, into the company and they're out quick. Right. And there's oftentimes there's, there's financial risk that you're incurring, right? You're, you're on a vest, you're on a, an earnout or, whatever the terms might be. So may, being able to maintain those relationships through the acquisition process for anyone, again, listening, going through it right now. Um, it's stressful. Don't, don't lose your cool. It's uh, um, you'll be tempted many times. <laughs> I wanted to scream at Zach and James a bunch of times during the process, but like we were able to, to understand that we were ultimately going to be working together. And there's some of my, you know, I look up to them a lot. There's some, some great colleagues and friends now. So. That's great. Thank you, Sean. So, Hey, last question. So, Right now, you know, in the in the startup world, right? So what are the investment investment areas that you guys are the most excited about and why? For example, there's a lot of attention on the metaverse NFT space, and I feel like nobody really knows what the metaverse is these days. Um, so what are the areas that you guys are really excited about right now and why? Anybody? Sure. Um, you know, again, I, I guess I'm the investor in the, uh, in the group yep. here. Um, and, you know, I'm basically, you know, voting with my feet. So when I started GFT Ventures last year, um, Global Frontier Technology Ventures, um, it was the result of, you know, having invested over 20 years and realizing the outstanding returns really came on bets on opportunities in new waves of technology before mm -hmm. they became mainstream for everybody else. And I say this because let's say if you're a generic B2B um, SaaS company or any sort of consumer facing B2C company, chances are your first choice of investors are going to go, you know, you want to go to Sandhill, ideally get a term sheet from Sequoia or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. And if you're not one of those top firms, then the reality is you're, you're typically bottom feeding and competing for the leftover deal, so to speak, you know, to be very blunt about it. And so in this day and age, unless you have a specific area of expertise and value add in this day where there's so much capital out there, I think it's really, really difficult to be able to tr attract the top entrepreneurs to want to work with you. You know, increasingly cap capital has become a commodity. Um, there's so many sources of capital beyond traditional venture capital now. You know, literally, you know, a good chunk of all the former entrepreneurs that I've worked with in the past are all in some way or fashion actively angel investing, supporting yeah. their colleagues, their former, their former colleagues or, or new entrepreneurs that they have relationships with. And so unless there is a strong angle of interest, it's really tough. So I'll get to the question, what do I um, define as frontier tech and what I'm excited about? Mm -hmm. You know, even though we've been investing in areas like AI or various AI applications, including robotics, you know, digital health, um, mobility related applications and blockchain, um, for us, it, it, it makes sense to stick to our knitting. These are areas that still have plenty of potential. I'd still like to think, and you know, I, I hope that Adam agrees with me that you know, AI is still in the early innings. You know, the, the, the potential of the technology as a whole uh, is transformational. Um, and my partner, Jeff Herbst and I, and Jeff, some of you may know, he was at NVIDIA for 20 years running their BizDev Corp Dev. He built that NVIDIA AI startup ecosystem at what they call Inception, where they have over 9,000 AI startups. And the reality is we both believe that, and we've lived through the internet revolution, the mobile revolution. We believe this internet revolution is really the biggest disruption in our lifetimes and the potential of disruption across every single vertical industry, as well as every single horizontal business function 
is so big that, um, you know, that's a huge area of focus for us. Um, and I know that's very broad, um, but as a horizontal technology layer, I'm super excited about the potential of AI. Uh, we're still in the early innings. Great. Thank you, Jay. Who wants to go next? I can go. Um, so Jay's, Jay's the investor, uh, the professional investor, but um, I, I'm not much of a gambler. Like I'm going to Las Vegas tomorrow. I will not put one nickel into a slot machine. <laughs> Uh, so my nature is unless I have some advantage, I'm not a big investor. There are a few times when I see a company and it's rare, like it's, it's one in a thousand. I see a company and I go, oh my God, there's no way this is not successful. So, you know, which is, so again, I'm not looking to put money in, but every once in a while, I'll see something that's a hit. Uh, for me, one of those companies was, was called Exnor. Uh, they were acquired by Apple, I think, for 200 million or so. And um, I just saw the team, the technology, the space, the demonstration systems, what they had. I'm like, guaranteed, no brainer, has to work. You can't, can't imagine. But I'm not really, I, 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 all this to say I'm not, much of an investor. And I don't consider myself a professional who knows how to pick well. It's just every once in a while I'll see one. The area I'm most interested in though, and I get most excited about, which was your question, mm -hmm. is I feel that the world is being faced with a set of global complicated issues. And, and I always talk about trends and triggers as how I think about where to invest at least my time, if not my money. Um, but right now, things like the pandemic, things like global warming, things like, you know, we're, we're going to be faced with problems like pollution, water, you know, food, poverty, disease, social issues. Like these are big world-changing uh, issues. And I think for the first time, these issues are now starting to become present in the minds of most people. Everyone's a little uncomfortable about the pandemic. Everyone is a little bit uncomfortable about global warming. So five years ago, I didn't think that's the case. But now, I think people will pay a little bit more attention to companies who might have solutions to some of these big problems. And I think there that these types of companies uh, can not only be uh, help the world face some of these issues, but can also be very profitable doing it. So I, I, the things that excite me most are not, are not metaverse and Things like yeah. I, I don't, that would be great. I want lots of universes I can go to, but most importantly, I want this universe, well, this uh, you life can experience yeah. to be better. And if companies are working on some of the hard problems that will face us soon, they're going to get more of my attention. I was going to make a joke and say, you can still save the world in the metaverse, but it's still possible. But yeah, I mean, I think it, you're spot on. I think um, we can't, we got to be aware of those global issues, right? We can't just get away from it because it's going to happen. It's coming, right? So, um, Sean, any uh, any areas that you get, you're interested in or you're excited about? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, to Adam's point, when you're, when you're kind of operating a business, you, you get really deep in a very specific area. You tread where... <laughs> other folks would be crazy to jump into right it's been eight years in sports for me right in yeah performance um and software those three things kind of align so um and, and with that i've met a lot of really cool people solving really cool problems in that space i feel comfortable um with certain teams with certain founders with certain ideas um for instance there's a you know there's a, not the name companies there's a company who's um who's, who's solving the problem of helping strength coaches scale to over a hundred consumers. It's such a silly little small problem, but how can one strike coach work with 152 consumers um, 
and, and, and to keep them engaged in a platform where, where the, the, the other way that problem has been solved in the past is a, is a gym membership where people stop going after two months. Right. Um, so can we, can, can that problem be, I think that, that, that's a, that's a great solution to the problem and, and they're, they're solving it. Right. So I feel comfortable making, making calculated bets really right in, investments in, in some of those tech that, that I've had exposure to as far as things that excite me that I'd like to learn more about. I've done a little, little bit of work in the, in the, the, the nutrigenomics space. So, so think um, where, where genomics meets nutrition, personalized nutrition, um, what the gene by environment stuff, right? How, how does, how, how does, how can you tell your, your, your own nutrition um, to your current makeup, right? To your genetic makeup. Um, how's that going to play out, right? You have these policies set at a super high level, right? And that does touch a little bit on, on the global problem, Adam, right? I mean, uh, uh, the problem of obesity and just general metabolic health is a huge problem. It's just a, it's a huge problem, but it's a huge problem that has a very evident solution. Um, and it's going to start with education. Um, and it's not necessarily the space we're playing in, nor it's not the space that no is ever going to play. In. We're, we're trying to squeeze out one more drop of, of performance out of these athletes at, at the most elite level. Um, but there's a whole slew of problems to solve with, with, with respect to the metabolic health crisis. So, um, I'm really optimistic about, about that front. I think people are really waking up to it in part because of some things again, like you heard the old, at this point, it's a cliche, but the pandemic has accelerated tech 10 years, right? You see a lot more things being adopted a lot faster. So, um, and what, I mean, on, on the, the question of the, the metaverse there, Julian, I think um, yeah. decentralization in theory is really cool. It's a, it's a great kind of utopian dream of, cutting out all sorts of middlemen and bureaucracy and, and, and for, it's, it's perfect in theory, but uh, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're never going to achieve true decentralization just from the nature of how markets are structured, right? Where's the money coming from? It's coming from a central location. That's where it starts. It has to come there. So I don't know. I've got my own opinions. There. <laughs> yeah. Talk, talk about that for another six hours, but um, those are my thoughts, Julian. Great. So look, uh, I want to thank you all for, for your time today. We had the end of the podcast, but I think it was a great discussion. So thank you guys all for joining us today. Hey, Julian, thanks for the opportunity. Adam, Sean, really nice meeting you guys. Yeah. Hey, Adam, great to meet you too. And Julian, thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, guys. Thank you.